Hi, this, I'm Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 26th episode of the Truth Island podcast. Imagine you are frantically rushing towards work, swinging from subway to bus, or trying to negotiate the morning rush hour traffic. Your eyes are peeled to your digital watch as with every passing minute, you realize that you are going to be more and more late to work. You imagine the embarrassment of everyone else who is hard at work and you are imagining how they are going to react when you stroll in 15 minutes late. You rush past the front security and press the elevator button 10 times, hoping that with each push, the elevator will somehow recognize your urgency and come to you quicker. The elevator finally arrives and you crowd yourself into the vertical mobile cubic room, stuffing yourself with five others who are fretting what the day will bring. The elevator door springs open and you run to your desk. But instead of the gawks and stares of disappointment that you were expecting to receive, you notice something else instead. No one really seems to care. People are casually chatting about their weekend over coffee, posting pictures from their night out on Facebook, and no one seems to have batted an eye that you were late. You decide to stay an extra hour at work, hoping to catch up on some of the work you may have missed out on, only to realize that everyone has long since gone home and you and the cleaning staff are the only ones that remain. Joining me here to help guide us through situations in life in which we are the only one that seems to care is Claire Bevan. Claire, what would you say to that overworked colleague who suddenly realizes they are the last ones left in the office on a Friday night? Well, it's not a great feeling, I'll tell you that, especially after having worked all week, you know, in a, in a grueling way. But I, I think when, when you're kind of telling that story, what I kept going back to was that sort of inner self-talk that this hypothetical person is going through, that when they're late, they're kind of comparing themselves to what people are going to think and setting this kind of expectation and then they show up and that is far different um and i and same with working late you think you know hey there are rules to the game and i lost an hour and so i'm going to make up an hour and that's only fair and i think it's sort of shattering when you realize that everyone else isn't playing by that same game you know and they don't have those same sort of ethical rules um and so i think the first kind of advice that i would give that person is to start to instead of comparing yourself to those others and really catching that kind of self-talk to compare yourself to yourself. That the reason you wanna make up that hour isn't because it's what everyone else is gonna do and it's not because it's gonna impress your boss, but it's because you have a value system and you value you know, certain level of output from yourself and you're gonna hold yourself to that. And I think that that, that sort of comp- that healthy comparison is really when you get people, you know, developing character and becoming people of value. And so I think that comparison can help kind of take the sting off when people disappoint you as they inevitably do. Absolutely. And I I think, you know, I talked about in one of my previous podcasts, this idea of the spotlight effect that uh, in psychology, it's this idea that everyone is paying attention to us. Therefore, when we screw up, everybody is saying, oh, well, I know that Aaron was 30 minutes late. Therefore, I'm going to sit here and watch him and make sure he spends an extra 30 minutes at work to kind of compensate for that. When in actuality, no one is really 
paying that much attention to us. No one's really noticing that we're 15 minutes late. And we're sort of, it's nice that uh, as individuals, we have that moral code and, and we're not trying to uh, commit like time theft and, and come in late every day and leave early. But at the same time, our rules are different than that of others. And that's something that we tend to forget. I agree with you. Yeah, I think, and when you do realize, you know, nobody really cares. No, no, no one is watching and we're the ones that are th overthinking it and they are thinking about themselves. You know, they have their own internal play. Um, what we were talking about Piaget, Aaron, recently, and one of his kind of indicators of that sort of teenage development or the, pre -pu the pubescent years is you almost feel like you're in a movie and all the characters are watching you. And I think that there is this sort of egocentrism that we sort of grow out of when we realize, hey, people don't care. They are so caught up in their own stuff. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, it's just you judging yourself and you better like yourself. If we found this person sitting there on a Friday Friday night, it's already 6.30, everyone's already gone to the happy hour and they're there at work, what prevents that person from falling into like the nihilistic trap? Because I think that sitting there at 6.30 or seven o'clock on a Friday, you might trick yourself into thinking, you know what? <sighs> no one really cares. Everything I do is pointless. Therefore, you know, I'm not going to try that hard at life anymore because no one cares. Why should I? H how do we walk me through uh, the mental gymnastics I need to do to get out of that frame of mind? Yeah, I think there's a couple, a couple things that are helpful. First is just starting to treat yourself with some compassion, right? Or, or take kind of a third um, party view of yourself and see what you need to to be sustainable in that work and, and certainly if you are working grueling hours every single day and depleting some of your sort of natural energy that's something to take a hard look at um, and so no matter how how much you want to push yourself you know really understand what you as yourself need and do all that work to, to kind of take care of yourself i think that that's really important um and then secondly you know i think it is quite hard if every single person in your world has that nihilistic view i mean maybe there's some viewpoint or, or way you can look out of it but we are such so creatures of our environment and we're creatures of those kind of five to ten people that make up the world around us and so you know it doesn't need to be everyone at work at all but it needs to be someone it can even be a role model it can be a, a, a mythological creature but just some aim or some perspective um, that can kind of hold us through those dark times and we can hold to and you know the, the more of those people that we get to surround ourselves with the better yeah, I like I, I like this idea that we tend to evaluate ourselves with our with people in our immediate proximity, our friends, our our workplace colleagues, and you know maybe at that corporation there's something really fiendish going on. Maybe they've just slashed everyone's salary, or maybe they denied people bonuses, and that's sort of creating this this nihilistic tornado of oh, well, at any minute now, I can be laid off. I'm not really going to give uh, two craps about this place because I, I could be next on the chopping block. But I, I think as individuals, we still then have the power to surround ourselves in other environments outside of the workplace where we can be rejuvenated and we can be filled with meaning and purpose.
Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of the work that we need to do to understand ourselves and what's important, right? And certainly, you know, our career doesn't need to be the end all in line with our passions and 100% check a box, but it needs to fit into the kind of overall map of belief and values that we understand about our lives. And so I think, um, yeah, there's, there's other outlets that can be inspiring if we just need to look for them and, and be sort of active. Now, I, I, you know, it's kind of easier said than done because like, it, it's really hard sometimes to find these like awesome, positive, inspirational uh, people out there. Uh, just a plug for Meetup. There's a lot of people out there on that. But um, it, it can definitely be, be a, a difficult journey. And I, I had this conversation with somebody else and they believe that, well, you always have to do things with people. And sometimes you need to be the shining light. It's not always up to other people to be the beacon. You need to be the beacon and inspire that in others. So I, I think we have to think of some criteria of the people that we're hanging out with and where we're deriving meaning from. So for example, I agree that sometimes I need to be the shining beacon, like that's not coming from someone else. But then I also have to judge how other people respond to my positivity. Is it being reciprocated? Is it being embraced? Or is it being negated? Yeah, absolutely. And there's an energy exchange going on between every interaction we have at work and others. And, and when you start to notice that, you can quickly see when you, you enter a conversation, you're not met with that same level. And that's okay. You know, and some people just come with a ton of energy and that's awesome. But I think you know, watching how those levels are depleted and in what people we gain energy from and, and making sure there is some reciprocity there um, is effective. Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the most, <laughs> I think one of the most uh, things that have dissuaded me, especially in workplace settings is like, have you ever had Claire, the great idea in the office? You're super excited about it. You write it down and then you share it and you're not told no, but you're kind of nodded off. You're like, Oh yeah. All right. You know, we'll, we'll look into that. And then, and then it goes nowhere. It just, it dies on the cutting room floor and your idea doesn't live. I'm wondering if there's some pushback that you should be required. Like, is it, is it appropriate to then follow up with an email like a few days later being like, Hey, just wanted to touch base on this wonderful idea that I had in the meeting or is that right there a sign that you're dealing with the wrong people? I'm wondering how persistent you should be before you give up. Yeah, I think in that example, approach is really everything. Um, I say a lot at work in, in marketing, this certainly stands that ideas are cheap. Ideas are not that valuable in the long scheme of things. And yes, there are some groundbreaking ideas in the world and in academia, of course, but at the end of the day, it is all about execution, really. And so I think bringing someone an idea, I have not often found to be successful. What is successful, I think, is that whole idea of getting them to think they came up with the idea in the first place. And that's about under, you know, understanding other people's motivations. So that when you're bringing something to the table, you're, you're using their vocabulary, you're using their values. Um, and so just like we have these value systems of the things we know are important, we know what our bosses are, we know what our colleagues are, we know what our friends and, and lovers are. And so when we present ideas or work toward any type of goal, like putting that in that in that language, not altering our value structure to do it, um, but kind of guiding the horse to water, then it's then they have skin in the game. And I think so often 
not feeling like you have skin in the game is leads to this nihilism because responsibility is what makes people feel something, feel energy and, and feeling like they're a part of it. Um, so that would be kind of my, my advice is bringing ideas together, bringing people into the idea and really getting them to, to buy in first. When you bring up an idea, you speak in the language of like use words that your boss would use a lot or words that uh, your coworkers will use and you make it seem like, oh, this isn't a Claire Bevan idea. This is an idea that we all have in our minds. I'm just the first person to say it. Is that what you're, you're aiming right. at? Right, and, and trying to really know what are, what is everyone who's sitting at the table, what are they aiming at? What's their goal? And then sharing this in service to that thing, right? Or how that relates. And so in that way, you're kind of eliminating the people element. This is my idea. You want this. And you're bringing the problems to the table and then just dealing with those themselves. It's kind of, it's kind of what uh, like Dale Carnegie said, that you need to talk to people and show them how, how, this, how this will help them in some way. Because they, it's not, people may not just be apathetic, but they might just be apathetic to something that's entirely your initiative or something that they perceive to be entirely self-serving to you as a person. But then the apathy might start to melt away once they realize, oh, wait a minute, this person's actually fighting for me in my corner as well. Yeah, right, exactly. And, and they hear me, right? And so I think that's probably a big element here is the listening thing, which we've probably talked about on every conversation we've had. Um, but you can't figure out what those things are until you're truly listening to someone. And when you do start listening, and listening is one of those things like telling the truth, where we say we should do it forever. But the, you know, the real active listening, it's listening to the what they don't say or what, what the word choice is and what the body language is. And when you start to see those things, people tell you flat out what they think and how they feel and what their fears are and what their goals are. Um, and you're helping them to talk through and articulate. So all of this stuff, as you're saying, is like so easier said than done. Um, but I think listening, when we talk, talk about changing people's perspective or motivating them, bringing them out of nihilism, listening is really the only way to do it because you can't, hack it for them. You can't save them. So that em em employee that's there late at night on a Friday, that employee probably did not do a good job of conveying one, what it is exactly that they're working on. And two, how what they're working on is going to help everybody. Because if they had created that buy-in within the office, then people wouldn't just be on Facebook doing whatever it is that they feel. I mean, there could be other uh, mitigating circumstances, but that's like a strategy to get people to be like, oh, wait, let's gather around this cubicle over here and, 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 and sort of take stock in what this person is doing because it's, it's going to help us all in, in the long run. Yeah, sure. And, and offloading some of that, you know, and giving burden and giving responsibility to people. I think very often um, we think we, you know, it's easier just to do it myself or, you know, it's harder to explain something to someone, but that, you know, buy in. And also, I mean, heading into election, what's more than that? It's like a, a, a politician doesn't stand on the ideals. They really need to get people to buy into an idea and have it, you know, really reflect their own person. It's not an easy, an easy task. Yeah. It's like, no one's going to vote for the, the guy or gal who's like 
elect me president because I feel like being president. They have to come up with a very attractive platform of here's the awesome uh, bag of goodies I'm going to deliver to all of you guys if you vote for me on in November. Right, exactly. Even though we end up voting for the person anyways, you know, in the long run. <laughs> but yeah, they have to make this platform. Okay, so check one on the list. Don't lose confidence in yourself. And then try and create a platform that inspires others. I think those are two great pieces of advice. Let's say you've done all of those things. You've, uh, you know, recharged yourself. You, you have confidence in yourself again. And now you're speaking to people in a way that's agreeable to them. And it makes them have some hair and stake in the game. They just still don't want to do it. They still don't want to listen to you. They still are, are like, meh, eh, just get away from me. I'm in my own world. What then do you do as an individual to, to, to stay motivated? Yeah, I, I got some great advice from a mentor at work, um, sort of around management and what to do when you have an employee or someone on your team who just can't be inspired, can't be moved. Um, and and I, I was struggling with it because I really don't like bringing negative feedback. I, I call I was calling them kind of ironically just icky conversations. I like giving positive feedback. I like leading by positive reinforcement. And I just wasn't ready to have that conversation. And yet I was sort of feeling taken advantage of it. You know, at a certain extent, saying no and drawing a line is really a requirement to maintain your own self-worth and kind of maintain your own respect. Um, and his advice was, you know, often when you have that conversation, that person is so ready to have that conversation with you that it is a weight off of their chest just not to have to keep that bottled in. Um, and so I think often that sort of come to Jesus, just, hey, what is going on? Um, and trying to somehow, we, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. You have to have a relationship with someone for them to open it up. Just kind of calling someone on their BS and saying, you know, what's going on now? You know, I know you, do you want to work here? If not, like, if not, it's okay. And I think as I've gotten better at having those conversations, you do see the weight come off of people. And I see this even in friendships of like, just some, sometime just laying it out and being like, I'm not going to let this go any longer. What the heck is going on? Um, do we need to take some space? Yes. Now, uh, this is where it gets really, really, really tricky. What if you're the subordinate and it's your boss that is the apathetic one and you kind of have to have that conversation? Because I think I think if you're in charge of somebody else, then you you kind of have that confidence as an authority figure to go up to them and be like, hey, what's going on? I, I notice you have been in a really bad mood. Is there something that's going on at home? Whatever. But when the person in charge of you is kind of giving you that negative energy that i think is a very very difficult iceberg to be on very hard and i see everyone complains about their boss and i think we see it in school that so often a teacher was oh they're so unfair or they they are a bad teacher or they're you know so and so and and we let that kind of become our excuse um and i think to a certain extent you know bottling up and kind of with the stoic principle figuring out what you can change and what you can't. And in a boss relationship, I think I often don't like, I, I don't like myself when I get that ego, of like I could have done that better because it's like, well, you know, screw you. You're not, that's not in your role. Who are you with your limited capacity to think you know what is going on in that situation? And so I think having the humility to separate out, hey, I can't do his job. That's not my job. And so 
look at what you can control, what is in your purview, what can you fix, what, what kind of team, teammates on the same level or cross-functionally could you improve. And once you start doing that, people will notice. They will gravitate toward that positivity and the competence and give, give you six months and you have your boss's job without, you know, there's it's just a different approach than going and just, you know, so-and-so you suck, you suck, you suck, or even going to HR or going above them or any of that, you know, fix your own world and people will see it and, and they'll give you more and more responsibility. I, I hear you, Claire. I think, and I, I think that's a very good stoic uh, strategy. Sometimes, and, and who knows, maybe I just don't have any tact and I'm really bad at this, but sometimes you get into conflicts where not only is your boss apathetic, but they're actively like undermining you and they're making it very difficult for you to be that stoic warrior that, that's towing the line and doing the right thing and, and galvanizing the troops and so forth. So I, I think that Yes, that's that's absolutely, and you and you hope that your boss's boss sees all of this going on, and that eventually they see what an awesome asset you are, and that you get your boss's job or some kind of promotion. I'm wondering where, how you can still love yourself, and I'm wondering how you can still care, even if you have to then just give up on the workplace altogether. And, and let's say in that, in that, in that period, you're looking for another job, you're going on Indeed every day, and you're, you're looking to remove yourself, but it's just not happening, you're just not getting those callbacks. How is it that you can still have dignity about yourself and even and survive eight hours in toxicity? I'm, I'm wondering if that's even possible. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the level of toxicity. And I think it is, if there is a certain amount of it, you do have to have that line and that barrier and, and saying no, lets people know that you can say no and right. that you do have a values and you do have lines. And so knowing what those are and not letting people cross them. And I think if they do trying to call it in the moment, not letting that bottle up, you know, there's that. Um, but I, I also think, you know, every team and every human has complexity and, and it sounds like the boss you're describing there's an insecurity component there, right? Yes. That there's something threatening or there's a there's an unhappiness in them that they have to work on that has nothing to do with you. And that's just not some a battle you're probably going to win. Um, and so trying to, to treat that person also with compassion um, and know that, you know, that is their own struggle and kind of approaching those conversations with a sense of compassion. I sometimes joke, I think my mom is the one that told me this, although it's ridiculous that when you really, really hate someone and just when they say everything they say grinds at your gears, pretending, pretend that they are tripping on hallucinogenics. You know, like, <laughs> like give them the I compassion. Like that. They're not even a real person that they're like this. And, you know, and, and because that's, we're all just figuring it out. And a lot of anger comes off really evil, but if we could see it almost like a sickness or a high, it just kind of puts these strange goggles on. So it's a tough, it's a really tough situation. Certainly at any level of any relationship, sometimes you have to get out of there. You just have to call it, you know, and treat yourself with some dignity. One thing I'm liking that you're saying is that when you're in this office, you're almost getting to this like nirvana like state where you realize, wait a minute, I'm the only one that is seeing the world clearly. Like I'm the only one that realizes that this report is due on Tuesday. And you sort of kind of relish 
in, in the fact that you know that you alone are in possession of the truth of what needs to get done and everyone else. And I like what the, uh, what your mother's advice that everyone else is on some kind of substance and they, 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 they can't see the reality, but you alone. And I think it's this idea also of, of any, any given like action movie, right? The protagonist is the only one that's like, well, guys, don't you see the robots taking over? Like we got to do something about it. So I think if you get into this mental mindset of I'm the action hero and everyone else around me is just trying to stop me or at best they're just background, you know, actors just there, you know, getting paid for the day. I'm the real celebrity. I'm the star here that needs to get the plot moving forward. That might be a way to, to cope with it. Right. You know, it's scary. There's an ego component that you have to be careful of, you know, yes. like we can't all center ourselves to this white knight, yeah. but, but I do think like acknowledging ourselves and our ability to see things and the sight. When you were describing that, I just sort of kept thinking of like Plato's cave and yeah. all those other people in the office just kind of seeing shadows or seeing reflections of their own feelings and each other versus, you know, opening up your eyes and really seeing what's going on can be eye-opening, okay, of course. Um, you know, it's, it's transformative, but you have to have a, you have to be sort of figured out and stable to see that. And I think even in my own life, you know, I have months of it or weeks of just feeling very stable and life makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, you, you get into a funk or something happens and everything gets much more cloudy and you start to just see reflections of your own insecurities and other people's insecurities. So it's not, it's not, at least for me, it has not yet been like an enlightenment that is, you know, there to stay. <laughs> the other thing, and, and this is something I need a lot of work on, is the ego thing. Because I think when you're playing the role of the white knight, you then start resenting the drones. Like you start looking at other people as less than, because you're like, oh, I am the one that cares and you are the background character. And that can be very dangerous because one, you're committing like the sin of elevating yourself to a higher plane than the rest of humanity, which right off, like from any religious point of view, that is a huge no-no. You never want to like, no matter how smart you think you are, you never want to elevate yourself to some status above everyone else. And two, people are going to start saying, well, who's that arrogant jerk walking around the office thinking like they know it all? Absolutely. I think there's there's a some dead president, it might be Jefferson, has a quote of comparison is the thief of joy. And I do think that you know, so much of our pain comes up with how, how we're comparing ourselves with each other. And the flip side of that is so much of our joy just comes from feeling like we're better than our high school friends or better than, you know, like, oh, and I, and I do feel that ickiness often when you succeed in something. And it's like, why did I really feel good about that? Struggling with our opinion of ourself. And when we're all with all these mirrors that reflect something different back to us, it's really hard to kind of stay confident in that. Yeah, so this this idea that like happiness is is relative in, in, in that in, in that sense that we, we can't just necessarily jump to this idea that you know we're on top and that everyone else because because I'm at some elevated state than others, I can't feel superior and it can't be the opposite. Because perhaps other people are more motivated than you in other ways that you're not seeing. Like you might have a lot of blind spots of other things that are going on behind the scenes. And if you keep that in check, that, that kind of brings a little humility to your life. 
Yeah, and that goes back to, to our kind of comparison piece from the beginning of comparing ourselves to others is just so inaccurate because we don't account for all the experiences that are this kind of unique equation to our lives. Um, and so it's really just sort of doomed for failure, although it's a key part of sort of evolution. It's how we learn what we learn by watching and imitating um, others around us. One, one other thing I want to touch upon is this idea that some, some people that we know walk around with something called like notification bells. Like if you think of Facebook, you know, the notification bell and they'll, they'll walk into a, an environment and be like, oh, I spent all weekend doing this. And, and this like notification bell is just a way of, of like virtue signaling. Like, Hey, I'm such a stoic warrior. I spent all of Saturday working on this while all of you folks were at the beach. And I think that that is another extension of, I can't work hard unless I have the validation of others. Like if there's no notification bell as to my extra work, it's not worth doing. So that's also like a mental trick we all have to train in our minds. Yeah, just being really careful why we tell people things and who we're telling what things to, because even if they say not a word, the reaction of their face really will, will change what you do from there. And I think I have a friend who was saying, he was like, I'm working on something really big. And I was like, what is it? And he's like, I'm not, I can't tell you because if I tell you my chance of doing it will really decrease. That when you say you're gonna do something and you see that kind of reaction on someone's face, oh cool, you're gonna write a novel, awesome. You kind of lose some of the fun when you release the novel, right? You've already gotten the aha of the thing and now you just have to do a ton of work in order to live up to what you said you were gonna do. And I think that's where you can see procrastination kind of breeding. Yes, um, when you hire a contractor, they'll always tell you, never pay the dude in advance. Like if you pay, because once, you, once they have the full amount in hand, well, what the hell is the incentive of finishing the job? So I, I like this idea that you work hard, don't tell anyone what you're doing in the shadows. This way, when you tell them, you're not just giving them a sneak peek trailer of what's to come, you already got the finished movie to show off. Yeah, totally. And I think part of that self-talk becomes when you're working on it, you're like, oh, so-and-so is going to think this, or so, you know, so-and-so will feel this, or even when I'm getting dressed, how will my outfit impact the thoughts of the people that I'll be around? Like, wow, that's a lot to account for before you've even done the thing. That can encourage people if they see that, you know, their, their work is, is kind of like a futile exercise it also encourages them to start working on a side hustle in the shadows that they're not necessarily telling people. They're not, they're not going up to their coworkers and being like, well, I'm doing this on the side and then I'm going to be a millionaire soon and, you know, screw all of you people. If you quietly are working in the shadows, then at some point in the future when you're ready and when your product is ready or whatever it is that you're trying to cultivate, then you can really get people off. You can really take people by surprise. I've loved getting to watch how my friends have kind of taken on different small businesses and just other hobbies and things in their, in their spare time. But you see tons of it. And a lot of them, you know, they, they put up a Facebook page and it gets two likes and they never come back to it. And some of them really, really do take off. And I think the ones that you see the theme in is like the things that someone really does enjoy, that they would be making those bracelets regardless of whether people were buying them and that there's something meaningful there other than just the outcome and, and there's an end in itself. Um, so when we think about, I think, how we want to fill our time, it's 
what could you focus on for a really long time? Like for me, I cannot get my nails done. It's, it's the most painful. It takes forever. Every moment that passes is like Chinese water torture. And yet, it, if I was reading a book on animals, I'm such an animal freak, I could just sit there for hours and hours and hours and hours. And so starting to weed out, hey, what are those things that you just, your attention gravitates towards? And same thing with people. What are those people that just sort of you, you are, it enhance you, you know? You want to learn more. Um, and that's where we should keep focusing and keep looking regardless of sort of outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that if, if we are working hard and no one is paying attention, I think taking a delayed gratification route, whether it's at the workplace or outside the workplace is going to be uh, the path to go. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for once again being on the show. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you for having me, Aaron. This concludes the 26th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.